Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey guys, you're now listening to the Coaches Network podcast, a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent, and personal development. My name's Coach Yas, and I'm a UEFA licensed football coach, coach developer, and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons, and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. Right, guys, welcome back to the Coaches Network. My name's Coach Yasset, and I've got a very special guest with me this morning. My guest this morning is John D'Souza. Morning, John. How are you, man? I'm good, thanks, Yas. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. Jordan, thanks for joining me this morning. Um, just before we get into the thick of it, maybe just a, a brief background around who you are, what you're doing, maybe kind of explore it from there. Yeah, no problem. Um, apologies first for my sore throat and cough, just in case it interrupts anything I say. Um, <clears throat> so in terms of my journey, I, I started off as a player at Luton Town. Spent uh, four years there as a player, from under 14 to under 18. Was part of a, a very successful youth team that had the likes of Curtis Davies, Leon Barnett, Kevin Foley, um, Jerome Thomas, Keith Keane, Calvin Andrew, Daryl Murphy, all kind of within my ages that have gone on to play Premier League football and Championship football. So I didn't have any sour grapes for, for getting released there. I wasn't as good as those lads. Um, straight away, I then started coaching at Luton, took the under-9 team, which had some fantastic players. Um, and progressed my way up to to under eighteen and reserve team manager there. Unfortunately, we we were in a, in uh, got relegated, had a thirty point deduction in League Two. So I spent two seasons in non league, and it became quite a difficult job to keep hold of our best players. So I moved on to Brentford. Uh, spent the majority of time there as an under twenty three coach. Worked very closely with Mark Warburton and Uwe Russell with the first team. So spent a lot of time working with the first team players there as well. Uh, and then unfortunately with a change of direction for the club uh, was made redundant when when they shut their academy down. Joined Colchester. Uh, I've been at Colchester now this is my sixth season, three years as, as as academy manager and two and a half years as technical performance director. Um, a lot of time there, just kind of condensed really into a couple of minutes. You know, so, um, well done on that. But there's obviously a lot to unpack within that. So just, you know, just just take us through that a little bit. You know, well, you talked there about being a youth player at Luton Town. Um when did you start to realise that maybe it wasn't going to quite be for you in terms of the playing career and you started maybe focusing a bit more on the coaching side of things? I think the coaching probably came at a later date. I think I realised as soon as I became in the building, in the full-time building, uh, maybe because I was a Luton lad going into the building, working with players, first-team players that I probably had a little bit more respect for than maybe some of the other lads did in the, in the youth team. Uh, I really struggled to be a dominant player within training and games you know I was very nervous whenever the first team players were around very nervous um, whenever we trained with the first team so I think my mentality wasn't strong enough to be um, as good a player as I should have been the kind of player I was and I mean it with no arrogance is I was only ever going to play at a higher level or not at all because I was quite technical and because I wasn't brave enough to go and take the ball off people in training and accept the ball off people in training I was never able to show what I'm good at and obviously it highlighted my weaknesses so quite early on in my first year as, a, as an under 17 I, I realised that I probably wasn't going to be a professional footballer um, after that I didn't really know what to do I had a year out under 19 played a bit of non-league football 
did a little bit of coaching in the community department at Luton, but wasn't convinced that was right for me. And then kind of I enrolled on a, a degree, a sports studies degree, and started to coach at um, at Luton. And, and from that point onwards, it was it was definitely the career I wanted to go. But there was no plan to go into coaching. I was offered it by Luton, had nothing else to do, and then really enjoyed it. No, no I think that's it's quite similar to a lot of people maybe do get into coaching. They don't really plan it. Uh, it just kind of, it just kind of, I don't want to say it, it just happens, but it stumbles upon them in some way, shape, or form. Um, so I guess you know, go go in and there. Then you know, you you've done a. How long was you at Luton before you then moved across? So I did four years as a player. Uh, sorry, yeah. five years as a player, and then I did six years as a coach. So right. eleven years in total. So just talk to us about that then. That time in terms of initially coming in as a player, and then once you I guess began starting the coaching side of things. Were there any major changes or many or any kind of moments where you thought back and thought, oh, only if I knew this when I was a player, that I probably could have done something different? Yeah, yeah, there was a lot. I think I think the big thing that I did was I don't think I gave my all as a player. I didn't. I wasn't open enough to talking to coaches about maybe the confidence struggles that I had. Yeah. So when I went into coaching and realised it was for me, I, I decided I was going to be very open about my mistakes and very open about the things I did wrong rather than what I did right. Because <clears throat> as a player. When you're now, when you're now looking at that, you say you say that you know you probably didn't give it your all as a player. Is that speaking in reflection, or did you feel that way when you were actually were going through it? No, it's, it's speaking in reflection. I mean, I worked hard. I think I think what happened for me is when I was probably an under thirteen before I signed for Luton until an under sixteen. I'm sure if you spoke to people that played with me, I was I was one of the better players, if not the best, in the age groups. And I don't think I spent enough time reflecting why I was good, what I was doing well. Sure. Um, it was just, I'm good. I'm going to roll with it. Yeah. And then when I struggled, because I focused so much on what I was good at and what I, I did well, I don't think I really spent enough time really reflecting on maybe what I shouldn't have done so well. And certainly now in my coaching journey, and you'll find this with this podcast, I spend more time talking now about what I didn't do well and what I should learn from rather than what I did do well, because other people can judge that. And other people can judge the programmes in places and the processes in places. But certainly in my playing career, I think if I'd focused more on the bits that I needed to focus on and more of the tough conversations with myself, it would have helped me as a player. And I'm definitely now doing that as a coach. Yeah, definitely. And, I, and I, the reason why I asked that question in the first place, because obviously now you're speaking on reflection, uh, a lot of people, they probably won't realise whether they are or just how good or how far from being good they are when they're actually in the moment. So I guess, you know, what would you say maybe some of the questions that you maybe would encourage people to start asking themselves when, when they're in the moment, if you like, to really establish and evaluate for themselves a greater sense of self-awareness, if you like? I, th I think be honest with your struggles. So I, I really struggled in confidence in terms of being able to, like I said, I had to get the ball, I had to take the ball because that was the kind of player I was. But in front of certain staff, and like I said, when I got in and around full-time football, I really struggled with that. But at no point did I speak to any of the coaching staff, any of the players and say, look, I'm nervous when I train, I'm nervous when I play. And, and had that happened, who knows, someone might have been able to help me get on the ball more and then I would have been able to show what I was good at. So my advice to any young player is if you are struggling with anything, please try and speak to your coaches. Definitely. And I guess from a coaching perspective, do you not think that maybe, and it might be a little bit harsh to say this, but do you not think you maybe you were let down a little bit by maybe the coach is not probing enough to see whether you were doing all right on that side of things? Definitely. It was, it was, I was part, pe people talk about, I hear people say old school all the time. Mm. I've, I've been in coaching 17 years now and, and professional football 22 years. So I think that, that gives me more of a, a scope to talk about what it looked like. You know, from my experiences, it probably the cycle changes every five, six years. So mm. I've probably experienced 
four or five different cycles in football. Certainly when I was a young player, it was boots had to be clean, you know, clean the toilets with a toothbrush. It was a real tough environment uh, and the coaches didn't, and there's a lot of benefits from that, by the way, compared to where it is now. But for someone like me, you hear a lot of the ex-players talk about how good it was for them because it gave them the real grounding and the toughness to be a player. Brilliant for me off the pitch in terms of giving me a grounding. But yeah, I do think the coaches could have maybe worked with me a little bit more one-to-one on what I wasn't so good at. Mm-hmm. Definitely. No, it's like, I guess on that then, do you think that that was something that maybe you've been lacking in terms of the coach education at the time? And just how, how much impact you can have? Because obviously, as things have tr- transitioned over the years and you talk there about what we're going, you know, the game moving in cycles, it's moved a lot in a, in a, in a few different cycles over the last 10, 15 years where there's been a massive shift in the coach education pathway and maybe what exposure the coaches now coming through the system get in terms of that additional piece around the technical corner and not just the tactical stuff but you know looking at it holistically and more specifically how to build relationships and make sure that you're setting a a more appropriate and beneficial environment for your players if that makes sense yeah no it does Um, the easy answer is yes I think more could have been done but again I'm I'm saying I've been involved 22 years I'm very conscious that there's people involved in the game 30 40 years ago that were very very good some of the best coaches I've worked with and a gentleman called Wayne Turner who's a big mentor of mine you know he hasn't coached for a long time but he talks about relationships building up you know players weaknesses working on their strengths all those kind of things and, and he wouldn't have had the support that maybe some of the other coaches didn't have so I think it was very much dependent on the individual coach um, and I also think players back then were probably a little bit tougher than they are now so the methods that worked back then worked for the players that that were coming through the system right now there's a different set of young people coming through the system and I think coaching will, will have to evolve for them and evolve again in the future so I think it's really difficult to turn around and, and pop what's happened in the pre in previous times you know I always say in, in 20 years time there'll be young children saying well what people used to drive their own car that, that's the way it works so I think you've got to focus on what's right now and obviously learn from the past but certainly not be critical of what happened in the past yeah, no, I don't think it's not, not so much a criticism. I think it's just an establish, establishment of just what the landscape was like and how it has maybe tra- tra- transformed to, to where it is now. So I guess on that then, um, and something key that you mentioned then, I think is, is, is a great point to touch on is obviously you talked about having a mentor there. Just how important is it maybe for coaches earlier on in their journeys to start thinking about potentially having a mentor? Because I know yeah. I really have one until about probably five, six years into my journey where I rate someone that could really consider a mentor obviously there's going to be people that I, yeah. I connect with and there's people that you you know you develop relationships with and you think to yourself you know you can share information and whatnot but actually to have that that mental figure that you can kind of go to and seek advice from and not just having one mental but having different mentors for different aspects of what you want to what you want to develop in just how important is that and what would you what would you say to any young coaches or new coaches coming into the industry now thinking just how important that is yeah, I think overall it's crucial. And you mentioned it took you five or six years to um, <clears throat> get a mentor. It probably took me three years. And I think that worked out quite well for me because I think if you get a mentor too early, the danger is you end up trying to be like them. Yeah. Um, and what I was able to do, and Mark Ridgway was was head of youth at the time and he gave me the under 10s, no, yeah, the under 10s or the under 9s it was at the time. And and he was brilliant in that he kind of entrusted me to, to take the group coach how I wanted to coach, deliver what I wanted to coach. So my first three years, I was really, really able to to define who I was as a coach and what I believed in as a coach and what my methods were. Then a gentleman called Greg Brown come in at at Luton, uh, gave me the under-16s and brought Wayne Turner specifically to work with me, which was fantastic. So Wayne come to work with the 16s, but his main role was to work for me. 
he was brilliant and still to this day is brilliant for me. But I think what I was able to do before I worked with him is really find out who I was, what I wanted to be as a coach. And then all the feedback and everything he gave me, I used it to, to develop me rather than to be like him. And I think that's a really crucial thing. But since since then, he's been probably the first person I call with any issues, any problems. And, you know, he's been different class because he gives me a balanced, honest view, which I think is crucial for a mentor. Just that, you know, you talk there about Wayne being brought into the environment. Now, I'm assuming that you probably didn't have much part to play in him coming in. So in some cases, you're going to have a situation like that where a mentor is brought in um, and not necessarily sought after, if that makes sense. What would your advice be to those coaches who maybe haven't, because obviously that's something out of your control, but what about those coaches who may be looking for mentors uh, and are trying to identify where they could get that? What are maybe some of the questions that you encourage coaches to maybe ask themselves around how to select a good mentor, if you like? Yeah. I think it it, it depends on where they're at, where they want to go, and what they want to achieve. So, I mean, I know a lot of people want to work at first team level and they'll start mainly at under nines. It's important as having a first team coach strike mentor to help you work with under nines. You're better off, you know, I work with a guy called Phil Beadle who, who taught on, on, on uh, the un- unteachables on TV about how I deliver better off-field because I needed to get better at delivering off the field and I'm the one that sought kind of advice from him. So I think when you choose your mentors, don't go, right, I want to be a good coach, I'm going to try and win Guardiola because even if you could get hold of him and he helped you, what he's working with and where he's been the past 10, 15 years probably isn't relevant to the under nines. So look at where you're at now and what will help you now to, to kind of progress through to where you want to get to. Um, that would be my my probably my biggest advice. Don't don't go for something that that isn't relevant to what you're doing right now or where you're going to be in the next two to three years. So how many under nines coaches go to first team within two to three years? Not many. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. So just you know, kind of move things on. Then, so obviously, you know, you've had you had your four years and six years as a coach at Luton. Um, is, did I get that right? Yep. Yeah, and then you've then moved from Luton to Brentford. Um, talk to us about that because obviously Brentford. Um, Whilst the academy was around, was highly, you know, had a highly, highly positive reputation, um, had a great success rate in terms of players coming through, or um, at least if not at the club, they're moving on to other clubs. But just in general, there wasn't there was a lot of positive feedback around how, how the program was run. So just maybe tell us a little bit about the program there. Yeah, I, I, I think the biggest thing I learned from Brentford when when we were at Luton, it was a smaller set of staff and it was coaches king. You know, we 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 coached the players, we oversaw everything. We didn't really have the sports science, the medical, the recruitment, the analysis around it. Um, and going to Brentford just opened my eyes about coaches and King. It's got to be a multidisciplinary support system around developing good young players. Um, and that that's the biggest take-home I took from Brentford, you know, and you look to where they've got to in terms of their specialist coaching. That was very much in his infancy when I first joined. But it was about understanding and seeing firsthand how much goes into developing young football players just on that then you know obviously it was a project that didn't last too long what do you think it was in that environment because obviously you talked about being a multiple disciplinary approach um, and having all the different disciplines within it which has now become quite a common thing across a lot of the academies especially yeah. when you get to the higher end anyway uh, in terms of just how much access and facilities and resources they've got to go into with that. What was it about the environment at Brentford in particular that you felt helped them get the successes that they were getting? I think it was probably um, the the 
consistency of what they did, um, both at first team and academy level. So I'll, I'll use first team um, as an example because I think it's probably the easiest way to explain it. So a lot of clubs are now going Brentford May in terms of stats and mathematical modelling and, and all those kind of things. The reason why Brentford have and I think will continue to be successful is they do it and they believe in it and they'll be led by it, even if it doesn't fit within their own um, within their own ideas. You know, because I think a lot of clubs have their own narratives and if the stats fit it, brilliant. So if a team's struggling, they'll go with the stats. If there's teams doing well, they want it to fit and doing well. Whereas I think Brentford was so unique that they had a belief in what they were putting together and ultimately they were going to follow that belief and go with the stats, even if it contradicted some of their own kind of subjective beliefs. I think that's what set them apart and probably continues to set them apart as well. Mm. And I think, I think that's really important because obviously there's a lot of people out there that kind of just go with the trend and whatever's happening in that moment get allow themselves to be influenced by that whether that as as an individual or as a collective and I think that it's really important that you kind of have that self-belief and I think a lot of that comes from actually examining and really really deeply assessing critically what it is that you're trying to achieve and why you believe in what you believe so I guess in your role there you know maybe just tell us a little bit about your role and how what, what you maybe thought you brought from your previous experiences into that environment and what maybe some of the biggest influences in the environment at Brentford were to you? So my role was predominantly to work with the older players in the in the in the academy, so the under eighteens and under twenty threes. I did three and a half years as under twenty three coach, uh, eighteen months as an under eighteen coach, including the first year where I ran both squads. I was coaching 30, 30 players by myself. Um, I did probably six months real hands on with the first team, where I did all hand, uh, home games with Mark Warburton, and I also did probably a year where I worked on and off with Uwe Rossler helping out first team sessions. So my, my main focus was to work with the players. Um, I then had a role as kind of coach developer where I worked with the academy coaches and had a big influence on the influence on the coaching programme. So it was really from top to bottom. I knew every player at the club from under nine up to first team and had a, a good relationship with the majority of them. Um, so that was my role. Um, and I think what I took from Luton to try and bring into Brentford was the fact that Luton, there were so many people that knew all the players at the club. And at Brentford, it was, I was quite keen on making sure that as one of the older coaches, I knew what the younger coaches and more importantly, the younger players were like. And I think that speaks volumes as well in terms of just how, you know, you come back to the top of it, you talk about building relationships and how did you feel that that had a, I mean, what impact did you feel that maybe had on the other coaches, especially the younger ones? Because, you know, I think a lot, you know, you mentioned previously that you think a lot of, co a lot of coaches do would like to work in the first team game. Um, but the reality is we're going from under nine to the first team or any other stage to the first team isn't as simple as that. And sometimes it does take many years. So I guess, for those coaches who are maybe, for lack of a better way of describing it, are at the bottom of that ladder, they can often feel maybe demotivated and undervalued if they if with the amount of time it sometimes takes them to get to that process or get to the stage that they want to get to. So I guess in that respect, how important or what just how impactful do you think it was for you to make sure that as one of the senior coaches in the environment, you're actually regularly touching base with those with those. Uh, coaches that are maybe a bit earlier on in their journeys if you like mm, good question I think like I said at the start I don't want to talk like I was I was perfecting the, the model and, and everyone thought I was really good so 
I can only perceive what and, and assume what they might have thought. But I think what I tried to do alongside Ozzy Abanji, who Academy Director knew everyone, Stuart English, and, and what he'd done is he made Stuart English head of coaching. So Stuart oversaw basically the schoolboy programme, uh, but focused on the foundation phase. So again, that showed the direction of the club. I hope that the coaches would have seen me, um, you know, at some times doing a warm up with the first team on a Saturday, but also if I'm taking a 23 session on a Sunday, as soon as that finishes, walking over to watch the under nines or the under tens. And I know that hopefully all the coaches would have known that if they called me at any point, I'd be on the phone to, to give them advice. I was just present as much as possible. I do the same here at Colchester. I try and be present as much as possible. But obviously it's difficult to be as present as, 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 as you'd like to be with all that's going on at football clubs. So yeah, I think I think you make a great point there, and I think it's just have being present is is definitely a great thing. But it's not as simple as that, especially when you're you know what would your advice be to maybe those coaches who are maybe part time staff in those environments? Because now that's not their bread and butter. If you like, it's not. It's it's probably more often than not it's just something they're trying to juggle alongside maybe a full time career elsewhere, yeah. or it might be their first step in. And then like I said, they're having limited exposure, limited impact in terms of their role. Yeah, that's be to those those guys there about you know trying to stay present because that, 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 those are some realistic challenges that people do have at times. Yeah, I, th- I think um, I, I I unfortunately haven't experienced the part time full time. I had part time work. I was at university, so as much as it took up time, it was slightly different. Um, I think what they've got to try and do is make sure they they and I think it happens too often that people play lip service to their senior management. So if it's um, the foundation phase part-time staff that it only works one way sometimes where the, the the lead foundation phase will be quite directive in terms of what they want from the foundation phase part staff but it's got to work both ways you know and those the staff have got to be brave enough and obviously it depends on the environment but they've got to be brave enough to push people above them to to make sure that those part-time staff get challenged they get pushed they get developed they get questioned they get watched all of those kind of things should happen and if it's not they've got to be brave enough to, to really push. And ultimately, and it's really difficult to say when you need the work or you're trying to progress, if you're at a club where you push your, your, your line manager to watch you more and challenge you more and push you more, and he doesn't do it, it probably tells you where you are with your environment. Mm. So then, you know, obviously moving from Brentford, you know, where, where your role is much more player development focused, um, you move over to Colchester, it's, it's much, not, much more operational. What would you say... The massive thing, well, well, before you move on to that, what would you say were the biggest thing that you kind of took from your time at Brentford and then brought into Colchester in terms of how to lead others and, and I guess how to have more of a positive influence? I probably didn't take enough. I probably think since joining Colchester, and I was lucky for the first four years we had an operational director. So I was still very much, probably four and a half years, very much focused on player development uh, and team development. But I don't think I took enough because having joined Colchester in, in the more leadership role, I now appreciate how difficult it was for Ozzy Abanji at the time, the academy director at Brentford, to make decisions. So I wish I'd spent more time trying to work out. So what you do is you end up disagreeing with what your line manager says quite often. So a lot of the time, and, I, and like I said, I worked with Ozzy, he was brilliant. He'd be questioning, oh, why has he done that? Or I disagree with that. But really what I would wish I'd done at that time would go, actually, he's made that decision. Why has he made that decision? Because I think it's so easy when you're not in the position of leading a programme to say, why would he not do this? Why would he not do that? It's not that simple because the higher and higher up you go, the more and more influence, the more and more uh, departments you have to deal with, the harder and harder the decision is made. So I didn't take enough from my time at Brentford to, to Colchester. I wish I'd... I'd, I'd, I'd spent more time thinking about why Aussie and, and, and the senior staff at, 
Brentford made their decision, not just disagreeing with it. Yes, just just on that then, you know, it's really interesting. So, so moving on from your time there, not having done it in the moment, is, is there any things that you've kind of gone back to and maybe laid a question and actually saw why and actually got your answer? Yeah, I want one, there's so many things. What would you say <laughs> so many things, so many. some of the major things are that, that you've now thought, actually, do you know what, now that I've got that rationale, I totally see it. In fact, not only do I see it, but I agree with it and I would now do it myself. I wouldn't say I agree with it, but I think the, the biggest thing is I've always said, be honest, be honest with people. And I think if, if anyone speaks honestly, they're never honest all the time. It's, it's impossible to be honest. And, and I, I've come into this role and realised you can't be honest the whole time. So if you're not happy with something or you're not happy with someone, you can't tell them all the time. because There's so many things that are going on that might affect the player or the members of staff decision making. And ultimately, you need to keep people on side as well sometimes. So I think the fact that I understand why things weren't always delivered with complete honesty and integrity at Brentford. I understand that now. Um, now I try and deliver as much as I possibly can and as kiss consistently as possibly as I possibly can with as much honesty and integrity as possible. But unfortunately I've realized it's not always possible. And I think that'd be a big thing to all, all staff that until you get yourself in a position, I'm sure if you spoke to a lot of academy managers, technical directors, head of football operations, they'd all tell you the same thing. It's so, so difficult to make the right decision. Um, so difficult. Um, and the biggest thing I try and do now in, in a leadership position is explain the decisions rather than justify whether they're right or wrong. No, definitely. So, you know, it's quite interesting because obviously, you know, you, you've had the experience, uh, obviously, as a, as a player to some extent. You moved into academy coaching quite a, a fairly... Fairly, what well, fairly good stage in terms of getting in the loot and getting some good experience under your belt. You've then moved obviously over to Brentford and worked in the professional development phase there. Um, but you know, being honest, we don't really see coaches that look like you that often get those opportunities. So yeah. just shed a bit of light on that. You know, what, what was that like for you? What, what is your background? Yeah. How, how 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 would you describe? How would you describe yourself and what would you say are some of the challenges if you've even faced any challenges from that perspective? Do you know what? I, I, I'm probably not the ideal person to speak to on that because I haven't... The, the only real racial challenge I remember, I, I was... Um, I went to a white Catholic school full, full of Irish boys um, and I remember when you first kind of... Before you start playing district football and playing against each other teams, no one really knew each other around the town. And as you can imagine, Luton, really multicultural area it was two or three teams that were very much kind of ethnic based. And whenever I played against those teams, being in a team for, full of Irish Catholic boys, uh, I was targeted by them because they couldn't understand why I wanted to run around with, 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 with. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs. So your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Um, 
were kind of the Irish the Irish lads. But that's that's the school I went to. They were my friends. Uh-huh. When I got a little bit older and obviously started to play with District and got to know them, they became friends. The people who used to try and break my legs, um, and then we said, you know, ended up playing. So that's probably the only time that I feel like I've I've really experienced being targeted because of my ethnicity, but for probably a completely different reason to anyone else that has been. Since getting in professional football, um, I haven't really. There's, there's there was. There was um, some articles about what some Luton coaches said about Asian players before I signed, which I saw. But I think it, I, what, I'm fully aware it exists and I can't turn around and say it doesn't exist because the underrepresentation in the game is, is, is worrying. It's as simple as that. But I think it'd be really... I was given the youth team coach job at 21 at Luton. I was given the under-23 job at Brentford at 25. I've been made academy manager at 30, technical director at 33, 34. For me to turn around and, and physically push that you know, the lack of numbers is 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 worrying. I think it's being disrespectful to the owners and senior staff at Luton, Brentford and at Colchester because I've been given some fantastic opportunities for my age, regardless of my ethnicity. So I'm fully aware of it, but I'm also conscious that at the moment it hasn't affected me as much. I'm sure it will do at some point. Um, but that's where I stand. And, and all I say to anyone is you've got to make sure that you're good enough to break down the barriers. So when I, when I first met Uwe Rossler, you know, German legend, Premier League player, and he got introduced to me as his under-23 coach, I'm pretty sure he probably looked at me and thought, well, he doesn't look like the typical under-23 coach. I had to break that down and show him how good I was. And lucky enough for me, he didn't look, he looked at how good I was and, and not beyond anything else. I think, I think that's a great way to kind of look at it. And it is about changing perceptions because, you know, obviously, like I said, you know, you might come into that environment looking at you and thinking, oh, yeah, you're not what I'm expecting to be here. But I think it's, something key that you've really touched on in there is not only just being good enough, but actually being yourself, not, and not trying to, yeah, just being yourself really, not trying to, not trying to reshape, you know, change anyone's thoughts on coming back to the honesty piece. You're going to be on, if you want to be honest about it, you've got, you've got to be yourself. And I think it's only so long you can keep a facade or, or try and people please in that respect. So I guess, Working your time from Brentford into Colchester now, moving to academy managers. Tell us a little bit about your, your current role, because that's something that you know. I, th- I think you're not going to see many people. You know, we talked about being a youth coach in itself, but certainly doing the role you're doing now, we're not going to see many people that look like you doing that either. Oh, so it's a role that I never thought I'd I'd do. Uh, never planned to work towards it. So after three years of being academy manager, the um, the um, chairman spoke to me about being a director on the board. Um, so I sit on the board at the club uh, and overseeing everything from first team down to kind of under nines on, on the performance side of things. Um, and the way it was described on the performance side of things is, isn't so much how it is in English football, where the head of performance is, is in charge of kind of just medical, really. It was a bit like the, the, the way performance directors work at um, Olympics, where they look at coaching, where they look at player development, where they look at sports science, where they look at external factors. So it's basically to, to oversee everything from first team down to under nines on player and team development. So it's a, it a fantastic role. It continues to be a very challenging role. Um, so it's a unique role and, and I'm fully aware that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm travelling up and down the country on a Saturday sometimes going into boardrooms that look nothing like me. Uh, they're a lot older, a lot whiter. Um, so I'm hoping that, you know, at least if nothing else, it gets a face out there to show there is a pathway for people. Mm. And, and what I say to people is I don't think I'm particularly outstanding or... Uh, talented in any shape way or form so it's not I don't believe I'm an outlier 
You know, I don't believe I'm that good. I don't believe I'm the messy of coaching or the messy of development. Uh, what I have done is got myself qualified very early, which would probably give me an advantage. But I honestly don't believe I'm an outlier in what I've achieved. However, I'm fully aware that, you know, it, the numbers don't add up. Mm. And it's interesting because obviously you talk there about not being an outlier, um, but you've also done a lot of things to position yourself or to put yourself in a position that you are in now, uh, whether that be through, like you said, taking your qualifications early and whatnot. But that in itself considered could be considered as outlier behaviour in that not, yeah, not yeah. just going ahead and being proactive in the way that you have and kind of prepared for that. So just, you know, just talk a little bit about the role itself and what, what exactly do you, are, are, your, are your responsibilities within that and how much influence you then have on what actually happens on a day-to-day within the academy and within the first team? It's changed slightly, unfortunately, because we, we lost an operations director. So, like I said, for the first year and a half of doing it, it was very much day-to-day trying to align as much as possible through departments and through age groups. So that'd be the key that, you know, we, we do something where we do a hard training day. So the 18s, 23s and first team all try and train at intensity of about 100% of what, they're tra- of what their match day data is. So it was aligning that 16s, 18s, 23s. So the players are, are used to coming through that. And when the first team do their hard day, they're used to the demands. So it's very much about aligning all the departments and all the age groups and then trying to provide some consistency with it. Um, the past probably year and a half it's gone a little bit more operational as well but I'd like to kind of continue to focus on the performance side of things if possible Brilliant so then you know just um, I'm, I'm really thinking about your role there you're overseeing the departments you're overseeing you're trying to align everything together what are some of the challenges that you get within I think the biggest difficulty doing what I'm doing is motivating people with uncommon goals Okay. So when I was when I was academy manager, everyone, although there's there's always discrepancies and there's always stresses with the team departments and people, everyone in the academy are trying to get um, players into the first team. That's what their job is. So they've got a common goal, and however they might want to do it in different ways, but that's their common goal. The first team want to get three points. Now they do want to get the young players into the first team, but they want to get three points. The ground staff want to keep the pitches nice and clean and nice and flat. And because of my role, kind of oversees all of those kind of things. If I turn around and make one decision, 100% one of those three groups are going to be unhappy, you know, or if not two of the three groups. How do you make those decisions that you know are going to upset one department, if not more, and then try and keep them on side, uh, which I couldn't even tell you how to do it successfully because I'm still working on it. But that's definitely the biggest challenge. Um, my, my biggest solution to it is just try and communicate why I've made the decisions I've made alongside, obviously, the other directors and the chairman. Yeah, something's quite interesting. Obviously, you're talking about, you know, earlier on about being honest, you're never gonna, you know, you know, someone's always gonna be upset with what you're doing. Uh, what are some of the questions that you're actually asking yourself in that moment when you're actually trying to look into make that decision and maybe deciding right which which group should I be prioritizing here? Because obviously there's gonna be times where you want to kind of keep um the, the groundsman happy as an example. Yeah. Right? Well, you need to keep your first to keep the academy manager is it at some point do you not did you not get that kind of that, that sense of responsibility actually what, all that matters right now is the three points for the first team yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and I think it's, it's a difficult balance in terms of winning today and winning for the future and if you look at it last year we probably did get that balance right and even now we're not doing particularly well um, but that is a, a real difficult balance where you've got to try and um, what you don't want to do is just focus on the Saturday every week 
because if you win and just focus on winning every Saturday, you, you could end up going in different directions every week. So if you're gonna, and again, it's something I learned from Brentford. You know, if you've got a way of working and you believe in way your way of working, you've got to try and work towards what your beliefs are and have metrics of what your beliefs are. Um, and that shouldn't be dependent on, on whether you win, lose, or draw on a Saturday. Now, now ultimately, if you keep losing games of football, of course it will, will be a problem. But that means your processes probably aren't right. So just on that, then you know how, how much how much responsibility do you then have to take, or how much you know how much accountability did you then have to take if it doesn't quite work out for the first team? Any questions pointed? Any direct anything directed towards you as you know the, one of the directors, or how does that work for you? Yeah, I've got Alme, um alongside the owner. Obviously, it's, it's his club, and, and and he makes the majority of decisions. Um, but myself and the other directors have to take accountability for everything that happens at the football club, um, yeah. and that includes you know welfare issues, health and safety. I think once you once you become a director of a football club, you, you have to be aware that anything that goes wrong, um, all right. Um, falls on your head and and what I've tried to do is try and lead from the back through success and lead through the front through failure that's kind of what I'm really trying to do and and be be seen when we're struggling and you know allow people to enjoy the successes if we are doing well just on that then you know obviously a large part of that role is not only overseeing and managing those people below you but a lot of it's probably managing upwards as well Actually, having to having yeah. those difficult conversations, or even uh, even not so difficult conversations with the people above you, i.e., the, the owners of the clubs, or you know, maybe just speak to us a little bit around how you're finding that, and what some of the challenges are with obviously dealing with managing upwards, and maybe some of the strategies and solutions that you can, you have you've developed. And I know that is always going to be other things that come up, and there's always going to be opportunities to kind of still grow. But what what, what have you found that's worked for you so far in that respect? Uh-uh. I'm really lucky that our chairman is brilliant, to be fair. But I think it's the same whether you're managing upwards, downwards or sideways. It's communication. I think as long as you're honest, respectful and communicate effectively and talk as much as possible to to all the people you work with. Not saying it'll always go right, but people at least understand where you're coming from. Mm. Have Have you ever found yourself in a position then when there's maybe a message coming from above that you're having to deliver that you don't necessarily quite agree with. Yeah, I think um, I think you do that all the time, not, not just with above. I think um, you speak to any first-team coach that works with a manager, they've got a question and challenge in in the room. But when you go out and speak to the first-team players, you know, the first-team coach can't come out and say, I disagree with the manager, we should have played 4-4-2 instead of 4-3-3. Yeah. I think the key is you've got a challenge when you get the opportunity to challenge, but you've ultimately got to back the decision that whoever whoever has the authority to make the decision in front of other people. Because as soon as staff start thinking there's a, a crack somewhere or players start thinking there's a crack somewhere, they'll start believing it. And I, I think the biggest thing, like I said to you about decisions, is, is not whether it's a right or wrong decision, it's the consistency of a decision sometimes. Mm. So it's quite, it's quite interesting because obviously within that as well, then, you know, if you're in a situation where you maybe cope, consistently not maybe agreeing with the decisions that are being made, I guess you can, at some point, you can say, you know, you want to be professional, you can have all the behaviours that you want to kind of adopt, but at some point that's going to kind of wear thin on you in, in the sense that, you know, you. so just how important is it to maybe have an environment or have a situation where actually you're not in complete disagreement with what's going on? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really difficult. It's a really good question. I, I speak to a lot of part-time staff and say, and staff as well, is mm. when, you, when you go for an interview, when you speak to someone, you have to try and make sure you're you rather than what you think they want you to be. Because ultimately, if you're not aligned in your beliefs with where you're going in, 
that's going to happen, like you said, where, where you're going to end up getting frustrated. Whereas if you're quite clear about what your beliefs are and, and the organisation and the football club are quite clear what they are, you should never get to a stage where you don't believe in everything they're doing. You know, if black and white, if, if I turned around and, and spoke to, let's name a club, Chelsea, and they said to me, look, I want you to come and be manager, but we want you to go long and go direct. And I said, I want to play football and go short all the time. Well, there's going to be real big problems there because I'm going to have to represent decisions that I completely don't agree with. Whereas if we both agree on going long, then there will be some disagreements. Because they might say, you've got to go long on a diagonal. And I might say, well, actually, now we need to go long from, from straighter passes or whatever that might be. But at least your disagreements are going to be aligned with what the end goal is. Yeah. I think if the end goal becomes different, then I think you've got a real problem. Yeah. That's well, difficult well, to say. And I said it to part-time staff that, you know, ultimately we all need jobs and we all got to pay yeah. mortgages. So sometimes you need to get a job. And But if you go in for that job, you've got to expect to, you know, if you're going in where you don't think you're aligned, you can't moan at the end of it. Yeah, and no, 100% I agree with you. So I guess, you know, what would your advice be to some coaches that may be going into that situation or, or better yet, before they even go into the situation? What kind of maybe questions or processes would you maybe consider coaches to go through to help them identify their values and, and, and what they're maybe willing to compromise on and what, what are non-negotiables for them, if that makes sense? Yeah, I think, I think they've got to decide how strong their beliefs are in player development. Because uh, I think a lot of clubs are fairly consistent in the the values they hold in terms of respect, hard work, discipline. Um, but I think it'd be to really decide what are, are non-negotiables for you and how you want to coach yeah. and then get some transparency about the club that you're going to go to. So I won't name the club or the person, but I spoke to, to a friend of mine who actually put us in touch. Um, he was going to a club and I knew the academy director there very well. Very, very good, but very, very structured and yeah. very much, this is how we're going to do it. This is how we're going to deliver. Be open about it. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't hide anything. If you join, you join in to fit into how he does it rather than giving you a bit more freedom. I said to the coach I spoke to, you know that, you're going into that. Don't pick the phone up to me in three months' time saying you've got no freedom. And he said, he's transparent at the start. So you either buy into it and you understand what you're going into it or don't join. Yeah, I think it's really important that. And I think... It's just that question of, right, are you willing to kind of take on board that and give respect to that 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 way of working, but also then understand that actually, I think the, I think the thing that I often say, and I, you know, it's interesting because obviously I, I had experiences with that as well. And the question I've always asked myself is, right, what are the benefits of that? What can I take away from that way of that, that way of working? And how does that then help me shape what I want to become if yeah. that makes sense, as opposed to just saying right I'm going to go there because I but the thing is the other side of it is is there's coaches who will be stuck in that path for a long time and have never really kind of then found their own way if that makes sense yeah 100% it's a real it's a, it's a difficult balance um, but with anyone as long as they're they're consistent there was a, a guy called Fleming Pedersen who come in as head of philosophy uh, at Brentford and, and we still talk now his beliefs in coaching players wasn't necessarily similar to my beliefs in coaching players but it was pointless judging his beliefs on mine because he was never going to be any good so what I tried to do is judge him on how good he was at delivering his beliefs and he was excellent one of the best I've worked with he's now manager in Orchard and I think that's what you've got to try and do like you said is take the positives that too often people judge people on what their beliefs are. No one's ever going to be as good at you at delivering your own beliefs. So what you've got to do is judge people on their own beliefs and see what the merits are of their beliefs because that way you'll get something out of it. Um, and then if you get stuck in a rut of being somewhere where you just don't believe in it, unfortunately, I think the only thing is to, to, to get yourself out and move on, which I know is not that easy because people have got bills to play and people want to stay in the game. 
But if you're there for a long period of time and you find yourself not believing it for a long period of time, I don't know why you'd want to stay there. Mm. Apart from obviously you can't find another job, which happens. I understand that. 100%. So guys, just on that, you, you, you talk there about a lot about having your own beliefs and, but you know, a large part of the journey is also having, having the exposure to different environments, different situations, and then picking up experiences along the way. So in terms of the things that have influenced you and the people that have influenced you, what would you say are some of the biggest lessons that you've picked up along the way that haven't necessarily been from your own experience, but have been shared with you from others and maybe realize that at a later point, if that makes sense? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is treating people properly. I think in football, you never, ever know what's going to happen. You could be academy manager one week, you could be part-time coach the next week. It, it literally changes because, you know, the senior end of football clubs is so volatile with managers, with directors, with owners, with academy managers. So you never know who you could end up being reporting to, reporting uh, people reporting into you. So I think it's just treat people with as much respect and honesty as possible because you just don't know what's around the corner in football. 100%, especially such a small industry. And I think the more time you spend in the in the industry, it gets even smaller, you know what I mean? So, exactly right, yeah. As, you know, having gone through being a player, working as a, a pot, you know, as a, as a coach at Luton, then Brentford, and now then moving on to academy manager, and, and now obviously your, your role as a director. If you, knowing what you know now, were able to go and speak to yourself back at 21 when you've been given that youth team job at Luton, what are some of the what are some of the biggest you know pieces of advice that you'd love to give yourself? And I know that obviously it's it's a dream scenario that's never going to happen. But if there was maybe one or two bits of information that you've picked up along the way, or two one or two messages that you could just give yourself and think, right, boom, I've got sixty seconds to give John D'Souza twenty one some real key information here that would yeah. probably either accelerate the growth or just transform it completely. What would those be? I think I'm. Um... Trust yourself would be one, but I think the biggest thing, I don't think it necessarily accelerate the growth or, or transform anything, but enjoy it more, you know, enjoy the journey, enjoy the process more because I am quite driven. I am quite focused. Um, I don't think I ever really enjoyed it, patting myself on the back. You know, I got a B license quickly, onto the A license, onto the pro license, onto this, onto that. Just trying to enjoy, I would have said, just enjoy it a little bit more and have a bit more you fun. Now, I think in turn that would definitely, that, that would not act- I mean, do you not think in terms of that would accelerate your growth anyway because you become more passionate and you, I guess you learn to appreciate what you're going through a little bit more. So then if you then become, obviously become more passionate about it, maybe, maybe I don't know if this is necessarily the case. I don't know if it would, yes, because if I, I don't know, that's, that's the beauty about talking about the past. If I spent more time enjoying and cherishing the moments, maybe I wouldn't have been as driven and you just don't know. But again, with reflection, you, you, all you can do is go back to that and go, what would I have done differently? I would have enjoyed things a bit more and stressed out a little bit less. Yeah, but I guess in the enjoyment part, yeah, it would require you to be more present, no? Um, yeah, potentially. Potentially, yeah. So no, you know, I guess you know, that's, that's something that you'd like to tell yourself back then or potentially you, know, you, you wish you maybe would have done sooner. Do you find yourself doing that now? Are you enjoying it? Yeah, I am. I am. I think what, what really changed my life is having kids, and I know you've got kids. Uh, I think that's made me realise that that you got to be you got to be happy for them. So you got to enjoy your job because if you don't enjoy your job, you're not going to be happy at home. So I'm enjoying it more now. Yeah, purely because of them. Brilliant. Um, just as we look to kind of uh, wrap things up, then John, you know, what would you, what would your advice be to maybe those coaches or anyone listening to this that's looking to maybe get into coaching and 
you know, if you like, maybe some golden nuggets that you've kind of thrown towards them to maybe consider throughout their journey, and whether that be now or in the future. Yeah, um, I don't think there are any golden nuggets because I don't think there's any secret to, to working hard and dedicating yourself. Um, get qualified to be a big thing and control the things you can control. You know, you can't control being given an opportunity. You can't necessarily control the experiences you get. And I know you can't actually control the, the qualifications you can get when you get to a certain level, but get as many qualifications and experiences that you can get and push yourself out. Because I've found that the, the industry is more open than, than people believe if you just pick up the phone and send emails and texts. I think phone calls is always far better than emails. I think you're more likely to get some kind of response from phone calls, but really push yourself out to get qualified and get experiences. I totally, I totally agree with that. And, and, you know, just to kind of f- finish off then, you know, we, we've covered quite a bit in terms of your journey and I guess your thoughts and your insights around how to maybe approach it, how to, how to carry yourself. And I think just how important hard work and dedication is to kind of get a success in any way, shape or form. So I guess, you know, what what would you say is next for you? Because obviously, you know, you've, you've moved from you team coach, academy manager, now being a director of football, what, where, where do you go next? Do you see yourself moving back into coaching at some point? Do you want to maybe pursue a career down the first team management um, role or anything like that? I definitely don't want to work at first team football as a manager. Um, I've always said that. Um, young players is my passion, working with young players. So whether that be, I think if you're asking me a long, long-term goal, it would either be to work at the FA with one of the, the, the junior teams or a big club as a head of coaching um, stroke academy manager. I think that would be the, the long-term goal. So I've enjoyed this and I enjoy working with first team, but my passion is young players, working with young players and whatever role I took, it would be within that and focusing on that. Uh, and I think if you become a manager, it's really difficult to put that as your priority. Mm. No, that's what I, I really, really, really appreciate that. And I guess in having that passion for working with young players, a lot of that comes down to, and it's not specifically for young players, but it's, it's really about trying to add as much value and see see some successes come from, the, you know, the impact you have on them. So I guess if you were to be having this conversation in 30 years' time and were to look back on your, your journey, how would you like to be remembered by the people that you work, work with so far? I think I'd like them to think that I've played a part in helping them, supporting them, developing them, pushing them. Um, but anyone, any member of staff or player that, that looks back at me in 10, 15 years' time, I'd like to think I was there to help them progress to where they wanted to get to. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, I think like, you know, the more conversations I have with coaches and different people from the, from the different disciplines within the game and just athlete development in general, I think the one common thing we all have, or one thing we all have in common, is that we want to be able to add value. So I guess... Definitely. On that, just how important is it to get to a point where you understand where you can actually add the value? And, you know, someone said something to me recently. Uh, stop thinking about how we can add value and maybe start asking the people we're trying to add value to how they would like us to add the value. Yeah. I think that's a real huge question. I try and ask players, you know, what would you do if you were coaching you? It's yeah. easy us saying this is what we would do, but especially with ones that sometimes we're struggling to get the best out of. I asked a, a winger, the other day and he didn't know the answer so if he doesn't know the answer of how to get the best out of him how are we going to know the answer um, but I think establishing how you're going to add value is huge and I think if you've got good people around you speaking to them about how you can help them is far greater than going oh do you know what I've, I've done this with X, Y and Z so I'm going to pick it up and put it with this player because it worked with six or seven others it doesn't mm-hmm. work like that human beings are different and I think if you're really going to add value you've got to understand 
what add, like you said, what added values that each individual means because it, it looks different for every person. Yeah, I think also just to kind of elaborate on that, it's also understanding that yeah, each person does need a different a different bit of added value. But however, maybe not asking the individual so much what they would do, but maybe where you th- where do you think you could use the most help, rather than how do you see that looking? If that makes sense. Yeah. That's, that's, that's probably the piece that if from experience that, that that the individual might or may not struggle to kind of articulate yeah. uh, just because of maybe lack of understanding lack of knowledge lack of experience on, from that side of things but it, I think the, the key and I think the underlying message in all of this John is that you know it's about becoming more self-aware and helping individuals become more self-aware so that they can almost okay. diagnose self-critique um, on, on their route to, towards a solution if that makes sense Hundred percent, yeah. So, you know, John, obviously, and I really appreciate your time this morning. I just want to kind of just um, before we kind of head off, if there's any listeners that are listening to this now, or anyone watching this that's got any questions or wanted to find out a little bit more about yourself and and the work you're doing down at Cop, is there somewhere they can potentially get in touch with you or find out a little bit more about that? Yeah, I'm not too active on social media, um, but I'm more than happy for them to contact you. You can pass my number on to each individual. I've got no problem with that at all. Awesome. Well, look, John, it's been re- really enjoyable, really enjoyable in everything that you've touched on this morning. I'm, I'm, you've left me with a couple of things to think about um, that I'm, st- I'm, I'm probably not ready to unpack yet. Um, but I'm sure it'll be the same for listeners. just want to say thank you again for your time this morning, John. really appreciate it. Um, and have a great day, man. Top man. You too. Well, there you have it, guys. Another episode of the Coaches Network podcast, where our aim is to bring the world of athlete, talent, and personal development together to just one platform. And you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favorite episodes with everyone that you can think of. You can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at the Coaches Network or on Twitter at the Coaches Net. We look forward to hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. And until next time, guys, take care. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.